0: The hub is a community.
1: Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping. Problems. You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community.
1: created by Corliss Taylor. The hub is about impact.
0: <laughs> the hub is for everyone.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Professor Des O'Neill. Uh, I'm a professor of medical gerontology, and together with uh, Professor Mary Cosgrave, professor of German, uh, we co-lead on medical and health humanities at the Trinity Long Room Hub. The Long Room Hub is a centre for bringing together all the departments in arts and humanities in Trinity. Has been very successful forum for uh, interdisciplinary. Uh, seminars, work, uh, postgraduate research. And this is the longest running series of medical and health humanities seminars in uh, the Republic of Ireland. And we've been fortunate that in the silver lining of the coronavirus pandemic has allowed us to uh, widen our scope to international speakers. Uh, we're ably supported by um, Shelby Zimmerman as the administrator of our series, and Courtney has been supporting her also from the uh, long room Hub. And particularly, a special word of thanks to Leah Bredendijk, who provides the wonderful artwork for holding slides and for our advertisement for the series. So Professor McNaughton is exceptionally uh, well-known as, a, as a, a key leader in medical and health humanities, in the United Kingdom. So we're very pleased to have our talk. Following or during this piece, feel free to add comments or queries through the QA. Uh, our, our, our system currently doesn't easily facilitate um that we can have um, uh, uh, verbal speech uh, interchanges. So questions and comments through Q&A, which we'll be keeping an eye on during the seminar. So Professor McNaughton, delighted to have you here and looking forward to your talk on making breath visible, a medical humanities approach.
0: Brilliant, thanks Des. And it's a a great pleasure to be here. but I wish I was there in person. I would love you to be back in Dublin again. The last time I was visiting was about six years ago. Des might remember um, when I brought a group of early career researchers um, that I was working with to discuss medical humanities at the Longingham Hub. It was our visit. Luna dahl was there, who's obviously part of the big project on shame and medicine with you, Des. And I'm looking forward to actually seeing you both in Copenhagen next month if your clinical duties enable you to, to get away. So I shall start to share my screen with you all. Um, I hope you see that. Can the people, yeah, I've got, an, I've got a thumbs up. That's fantastic. So I'm going to give a medical humanities perspective on breath and breathlessness. It's, it's quite a topical uh, area because of the, recent, the COVID epidemic, but it's been much on my mind in the last five years because I've been leading on a project along with uh, Professor Javi Carroll, who's a phenomenology professor of phenomenology at Bristol, on this project called um, The Life of Breath. There's a picture of um, Javi there and myself. Um, And this just gives you an idea of the kind of range of different um, uh, disciplines that the project has been engaged in. So Life of Breath, obviously you're familiar with the term Medical humanities des has just used. But Life of Breath as a medical humanities project, I mean it recognizes that health and illness are influenced by many things, not just the biomedical or pathological, but experiences that happen to us in our lives and our background contexts, whether they be religious, cultural, imaginative, ethnic origin. Our medical humanities approach enables us to gather a team of researchers from across the disciplines illustrated here to understand breathlessness from a wider perspective than the clinical medicine alone would do. And this is important because clinicians have been struggling to respond to a quandary. That is that there's a mismatch between how clinicians measure lung function and how people experience breathlessness. So we can have as much um, as as if if, um, as much as a 16 to 60% shift between the clinical impression in terms of measurement and what the person themselves is experiencing. And that's also the case in COPD. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's recognized it's not just our bodies that determine our experience of breathlessness, but also our minds, including thoughts, emotions, memories, imagination, belief. So that signals another aspect of the study of breath, that it's both a critical source and mark of life, as well as a cogent metaphor for marginalization, oppression, and invisibility. So those two things tend to go together. And in respect of that, this project was, of course, especially prescient as it came to an end at the time when the world was convulsed by a virus whose most dangerous effect is that it takes away our breath. COVID-19 devastated families, drove economies and businesses to ruin, and radically transformed the way we all live. Two years ago today, in the UK, we all went into lockdown. And that still happens, still haunts our lives. And clearly, we've had even more hauntings recently. During the peak of the pandemic here in the UK in April and May 2020, I was doing some extra work in our local hospital here in Durham in the northeast of England. And I spoke with many clinicians who were working at the coalface with people very ill and dying from COVID. And I'm sure some of you on this call today will will have experienced this. One young doctor in particular gave the impression of being overwhelmed by the distress and need of these patients. And that was something at the outset that stimulated me to get involved in this uh, research on breath. The most distressing cases I would see as a young doctor working in A&E in Glasgow in the late 1980s were people presenting with breathlessness, usually men and women from the east end of Glasgow, a notorious area called the Gorbals, who had smoked all their lives and had exacerbations of COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. These patients were so focused on the need to breathe that they did not even seem distressed. Their entire being was about trying to get air into their bodies. Now, current covid oriented concerns about breath gained metaphorical force um, in May 2020, again, when George Floyd, a black American man, died after a police officer in Minneapolis knelt on his neck, compressing his trachea for almost eight minutes. His final words, I can't breathe, echoed those of another victim, Elliot Garner, and had become a rallying cry for the anti-racist movement, Black Lives Matter. And that's galvanized people across the globe to gather in protest marches at the time, despite the COVID threat. So breath and its lack now seems more than ever something that signals the way in which we as humans are united, but also how we were different. We're all in this together, was a common statement of solidarity by politicians at the outset of the COVID pandemic. But COVID had actually demonstrated very clearly how unlike and how unequal our society is. Here in the UK, this is emphasised by very markedly higher vulnerability of the BAME population to the virus. Some are more vulnerable than others. Notably, this population in the UK is a pattern that strangely... Um, uh, reflects the BLM movement's slogan. This role for breath has been poetically expressed by the Cameroon philosopher Achille Mbembe in his short essay, The Universal Right to Breathe. In this, Mbembe concludes, before this virus, humanity was already threatened with suffocation. If war there must be, it cannot so much be against a specific virus as against everything that condemns the majority of humankind to a premature cessation of breathing, everything that fundamentally attacks the respiratory tract, everything that, in the long reign of capitalism, has constrained entire segments of the world's population, entire races, to a difficult panting breath and life of oppression. To come through this constriction would mean that we conceive of breathing beyond its purely biological aspect and instead as that which we hold in common, that which by definition eludes all calculation, by which I mean the universal right to breath. So breath breathing and lack of breath seemed at that time to be carrying a great deal of weight across the world. People were shut away, inequalities within our various societies brought into sharper and sharper relief. Our project was almost over by the time the virus started on its effects. But a key theme that emerged from life of breath was the invisibility of breathlessness. Rather, our focus was on numbers of deaths and the risk of overwhelming our health services during the COVID time. Uh, Apart from that, we had a few occasional gasping words to camera from people suffering from COVID expressing regret for not getting vaccinated. Major restrictions to the lives of people around the world may have been put in place to prevent breathlessness, but the focus of attention generally tended not to be on this symptom, but rather on the ways in which lives have changed. The chokehold that's COVID-19, just like George Floyd, seems to be, still seems to be obstructing articulation of what breath means to us, or how we cope with its lack. is a metaphor for our times, but we still cannot explain or talk about it. In her book, Encounters with the Invisibil- Invisible, Dorothy Wall talks about her experience of chronic fatigue syndrome and comments to be seen is to exist, to have presence. The great fear of the ill is erasure, to be unseen in our suffering, invisible to science, tucked away in our bedrooms. This statement reflects so much of what we've discovered in Life of Breath research, the suffering of the breathless, the fact of social isolation determined by physical functioning, but also by shame leading to deliberate hiding away, the inability of clinical science to grapple with the symptom itself rather than its underlying causes, the lack of power of people who suffer from breathlessness. So in order to explore this invisibility a bit more deeply, I want to consider it in relation to kind of three contexts. Firstly, the experiencing body. Secondly, the breathlessness in, in in society. And thirdly, in terms of the political sphere. So thinking of the perspective of the experiencer, when we talk about breath, what kind of a thing are we dealing with? This this sensor experience is not just about a static visceral sensation, but it's something much more dynamic. Is breath to be thought of as a motion, inspiration and expiration, or as our breath, a packet of air containing oxygen, other gases and particles on inhalation, and carbon dioxide on the way out? However we think about it, breath is continually in flux, Impermanent, continually changing its shape and character depending at what point in the system you happen to observe it. It's akin to the air itself, as Steve Connor puts it. How does one study a substance that is everywhere? How is air to be picked out of its surroundings when air is ambience itself? How is the air to be brought before one? Where air? Uh, oh, that's a that's a that's a repeat. Sorry about that. Uh, when air is ambience itself. So breath is difficult to capture or to articulate or explain, but it's central to the functioning of our bodies and culturally at the core of the very essence of life itself. And if we believe in one, how we imagine our soul. Just one example from the Bible indicates its centrality in the act of bringing life to Adam. God breathed air into his nostrils, the breath of life. The difficulty of articulation is one reason why breath might seem to be invisible, even to the breather. The philosopher and doctor Drew Leder in his brilliant and clear book, The Absent Body, suggests we might think of the first-hand experience of breath as interoceptive. So Leder distinguishes three modalities of bodily sensation. Interoception, which refers to the sensing of the internal activities of the body, Extra reception, meaning the working of the five senses, taking in the external world, and proprioception, providing information of the position of the body in space. Leder, strangely, does not speak much of breath in his book and uses his example of interoceptive awareness, the gastrointestinal tract ingesting an apple. So if we think about his method in the conscious awareness of breath, we might think about it in this way. If we inhale consciously, We may be aware of the flow of air passing over our lips and tongue, flowing into our trachea. We can't feel the flow of air against the lung tissue, but we might be aware of cold or heat of the packet of air we have just inhaled if it's a particularly cold day. And we can feel our chest stretching and expanding to a greater or lesser extent when contracting and then contracting as the whole process is reversed. We also might be aware of the expansion of the abdomen as the diaphragm contracts in inspiration and relaxes as we breathe out. In breathlessness, this process is rather taken out of our hands, with the autonomic system taking over to ensure the oxygen debt is repaid after running or exerting ourselves. Of course, most of the time, breathing is in the background, invisible to the sensing body, but uniquely in internal the lungs, are not part of what Leder terms the recessive body. That is the body which is outside our conscious influence. We can take over control of our breathing, slowing it down, deepening it, even stopping it for a while. This control is essential for so many activities of daily living, such as eating, speaking, coughing, sniffing, or for specialist activities like singing or playing a musical instrument, or even highly specialised free diving the operations of conscious control add considerable complexity to what might determine the experience of breathlessness in normal and pathological states. Conscious control renders thoughts and feelings potentially much more influential in the case of breath. So I can describe the process of breathing as I've just done, and outline the physiological functions, but this doesn't convey how breath or breathlessness feels for the individual experiencing this. My co-investigator on Life of Breath, the philosopher Javi Carroll, herself suffers from a lung condition, LAM, lymphangioleomyomatosis, uh, which involves an abnormal, a very rare condition affecting women under 40, um, mainly. It's an abnormal growth of smooth muscle cells and causes thickening around the bronchioles. So Havi, for example, has lost about 40% of her lung function and it's irreversible, and it's very difficult. So she describes the inexpressible sensation of severe breathlessness when observing a friend. She says, throughout the time I was watching my friend, I was thinking how incommunicable breathlessness is, the distress and sense of impending suffocation, the panic bubbling up in severe breathlessness. The sense of loss of control are entirely impenetrable, as invisible as the oxygen the respiratory patient's body so desperately craves. An observer can see the person standing still and panting, the labored breathing, but these do not really convey the subjective experience of severe distress. Breathlessness is an important example of anthropologist Martin Nectars' point that sensations may be experienced phenomenologically but interpreted culturally and that embodiment is a dynamic process, meaning that past, present and future um, experiences profoundly influence how bodily sensations may feel at any one time. We translate the sensation described by Carel to one sense by an athlete who's just run a race and the experience would have been very different. The mechanical, physiological processes might be very similar, but prior experience, expectations of recovery, and especially the sense of control, would transform it from something devastating to a moment of triumph and exhilaration. So turning to the social uh, context here, I'll just leave that picture up. As well as a first-person experience of one's own body, Breathing is profoundly a social uh, phenomenon and it's perhaps in this context that's most brought into awareness. In a sense, we all breathe each other's air, something that's made visible in the social interaction smokers. These interactions depend upon breath like speaking, sighing, gasping and other expressions of emotion. The anthropologist Brian Land spent time with army recruits and concluded that breathing was part of the process of socialization as those recruits became soldiers. He found that breathing properly is a necessary prerequisite for running in a pack, firing a rifle, and even exerting authority. Saying, he said, it doesn't look good as a leader if you're huffing in the rear. Breathing is the activity that coordinates bodies in time. It is what signifies the experience of the we," says Land. That universally shared experience of breathing creates a common bond that we are often not aware of, unless it's brought into invisibility by activities that command attention, such as smoking or running in a pack. Difficult breathing excludes people from that universal community of breathers, and can be an isolating experience work on our Life of Breath project with British Lung Foundation Breathe Easy support groups, pictured here, some of our our friends here, James and and Gaynor on the right-hand side, um, have reported the kinds of arrangements group members make to avoid the embarrassment of being out of breath in the company of friends. One said she doesn't accept lifts to social events, preferring to get herself to a venue in plenty of time to greet friends, having first recovered her breath. Others report avoiding walking along the street accompanied as it's not possible to walk and talk at the same time. Yet more use the tactic of pretending to look in shop windows or or your mobile phone while resting in the street to recover breath. And another spoke of getting ugly looks from passers-by when parking his car in disabled parking space as it was only when he starts to walk that his problem becomes apparent. Work by our postdoctoral um, uh, fellow on the project, Rebecca Oxley, has also revealed how living with the sensation of breathlessness becomes part of a person's biographical continuity and becomes embedded in the rhythm of daily life. She talks of pacing herself as a way of living this life. She said, One of her respondents says, I have to pace myself now. I've always been a fast walker, and I've turned into one of those people. You have to sidestep on the street, holding everyone up. And um, there's also a sense of a steady awareness of a shrinking life world. Even in one case, a person's easy chair becomes the only safe or comfortable place to be. So breath is an important mediator of social interactions. It's it's a shared and taken for granted common denominator that connects people through the exchange of words and of breath itself. In its absence, coordinated in common social life can become fractured because breath and words are not possible. So turning to the kind of wider political context, and this is where the relationship with the current pandemic becomes the clearest, I think. Breathless people, um, even before the pandemic, were the most marginalized, certainly, in Western societies. And one reason for this is that breathlessness disproportionately affects the most disadvantaged communities. This slide shows um, information from a report by the British Lung Foundation on the impact of lung disease in the UK, published in 2016. And it demonstrates the clear clear relationship between common lung diseases and socioeconomic status. Those living in the most socially deprived areas are more than two and a half times more likely than those in more affluent areas to develop um, COPD. Key reasons for this include smoking, which is a much higher prevalence in these areas and among certain groups marginalized by ethnicity and gender. Other influences also include outdoor air pollution. This global problem, highest in socioeconomic-deprived areas of cities like Delhi and London, contributes to the development or exacerbation of lung disease, especially in the more vulnerable elderly and children. But while I was working as a GP in Glasgow, as I mentioned a bit earlier on, um, I think back on that time and I, I remember how my um, my patients kind of over 40 or 50 I would just expect them all to have a cough and a spit in the winter time and thought nothing of it it was just normal for people living in those areas and to my shame didn't really investigate it because it just seemed just part of life and you don't often see people out in the street like like our respondents from the British Lung Foundation struggling and having to stop to catch their breath or walking along with an oxygen tank which is something that Javi has to do the marginalization that comes from socioeconomic status is compounding by the physical disability, but also by shame. People with breathlessness don't wish to be seen. The word invisible is a current, recurrent feature in articles describing the experience of breathless people. An article about how people who suffer some C O P D entitled The Invisibility of Breathlessness shows how breathlessness can be seen as shameful and embarrassing as self-inflicted because of smoking or through failing to preserve fitness in later life. Um, The British Lung Foundation's um, report on COPD in the UK is in fact entitled Invisible Lives, and this report noted individuals may feel invisible, but there's also a problem of the so-called missing millions. The estimated almost three million people who suffer from COPD in the UK but don't seek a diagnosis because they don't recognise they've got a lung problem, a bit like me as a GP. People tend to accept the slow deterioration and chronic cough associated with these conditions as their lot and don't present to health professionals. Even when they do see are GP and are often support, the perception um, that they are unworthy, reported by some research, may contribute to the lack of uptake of management options such as pulmonary rehabilitation. And this was very much reflected in our research with breathless people in Breathe Easy groups. Stigma was very much part of this, self-inflicted through smoking, aging, not keeping fit. Breathlessness was seen to be shameful and embarrassing. And in a film we made for our exhibition, our Breathe Easy colleagues comment, it's not very glam when you sound like a set of bagpipes. The sound of difficult breathing is not easy to listen to. And as well as that, There's cultural associations with it. You may remember the film Star Wars, heavy breathing associated with the dark side, fear and evil. Davina Quinlivan in her book, The Place of Breath in Cinema, breathing elicits feelings of unease that may haunt the viewer long after the film has ended. So we've got this kind of cultural thing about noisy, heavy breathing being associated with people who may be causing us harm um, uh, or may be frightening. In other contexts, such as mental health or disability, a perception of being ignored or subject to stigma might produce a strong patient activist movement for rights, better awareness, better research funding. But this population of patients are often older. They don't feel deserving. They feel unwell. It's as much as they can do to go out and get the shopping. This problem does not attract champions, unlike heart disease. High-profile and high-status people like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton both had heart problems, but not COPD. It's not a problem that afflicts people in the public eye, and this has consequences. This is the funding pattern for um, respiratory disease as opposed to cardiovascular disease and, and, and cancers. You'll see that we have around 12 million people in the UK suffering from respiratory disease, 7 million suffering from cardiovascular disease. And the, the funding given to research on cardiovascular disease, 120 million from the British Heart Foundation alone, Whereas research funding for respiratory is 96 million from all sources. And this was a major problem that we tried to raise with with, um, parliament um, because it's such an inequity. Breathlessness is, is really a poor relation. We don't pay much attention to its people, although with increasing interest in mindfulness training, that is changing for breathless people, It makes social life difficult and this is stigmatized and poorly supported. More attention is now being paid to the problem, largely in relation to COVID recovery and rehabilitation services have sprung up to support people with long COVID. That that is important. But what about those people who've been living and dying with COPD or pulmonary fibrosis for 20 to 40 years already? So I want now just to turn in, in the final section of this talk to what we've done as a medical humanities project to try to improve the situation. My belief is certainly from a field of critical medical humanities, you know, I've shown you some of the analysis and thinking that looks at what's un- what underlies some of the problems of invisibility and stigma. But as a medical humanities project and a critical medical humanities project, we're interested in seeing if there's something that we can do to, to, to influence how things might change. So in the first instance, um, we are um, trying to set out some of the underlying cultural ideas that support these particular problems with breathlessness. We're explaining and exploring the ideas that lie deep in our culture about breath and breathlessness' origins. And we recently published this major edited collection that tracks this story from the Greeks to the present day the first such account. And it's available open access. You can just go to the website and download any of this book, um, uh, courtesy of our funders, the Wellcome Trust. And this is significant as it's clear that breath and breathlessness have not been a focus of much critical inquiry, or indeed of much writing, oddly enough. So much so that this lack of language for people with breathlessness to access and express their feelings and experience became a major focus For a writer's residency, we organised with our colleagues in the Breathe Easy group at Durham uh, and Dermontside. And this was a poem that was produced by one of the participants in that process, Jill Gladstone. And this is what Jill wrote. A chance, grab, grasp with gratitude, this chance to speak, to say, what? Can I do it? Can we do it? Do we have the courage? Do we have the language? We have the thoughts, mostly hidden, but words denied, or rather not asked for over the millennia. Thoughts fly, words flood. Whose language do we use? Who can share? And I think Jill's poem and, and the experience of running this these workshops made us realise, to the extent to which people with, with the problem of breathlessness, that the language they used to talk about their condition was very much um, uh, orientated towards what they heard and what they were able to express in a clinical context. And very often it didn't really express the real feelings they had about it, What they, how they were really living with it, what the, the experience was about. So it was really important that we managed to kind of um, pro- provide the potential metaphors and ideas that they could start to, to use and, and, and live with. The other thing that we did was we um, organised an exhibition called Catch Your Breath, Um, and that was an attempt to express aspects of this experience, tell something of the historical story and let people have a bit of a fun with their breath, and you'll be able to access some of this on our website. There's there's an online um, version of the exhibition if you'd like to see some of it. as a the other element that we tried to ta- tackle with a sense of, of increasing awareness was we um, we got in touch with the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on respiratory health, um, and we had organised to have a symposium in the Houses of Parliament to raise awareness of the funding discrepancy that I explained a bit earlier. But of course, with all as with all these things, the first thing that happened was an election was called, and then COVID happened, and unfortunately, our meeting didn't take place. But these things are important to try to keep pushing forward and raise awareness and see what can be done. So moving forward to management, because again, this was a thing that we felt very felt felt was very important. Um, we, as you may remember earlier on, I said that the uptake of the major approach to treatment and management of, of the symptom of breathlessness, no matter what the underlying cause, is pulmonary rehabilitation. Well, we worked with this Breathe Easy group in Darlington to pilot a dance project for people with breathlessness. And this um, has been part of investigating why the key evidence-based management tool for chronic breathlessness is not widely engaged with. in this Graphic shows you that for every 100 patients referred for pulmonary rehabilitation only 42 around about 42 uh, will complete it and we started to look at some of the underlying issues for why this might be the case through our, our project. The first thing was that the language of pulmonary rehabilitation is off-putting. Uh, rehabilitation has connotations of drug rehab even the world word pulmonary, which just talk, talks about focusing on the breath rather than the whole body, is difficult. Pulmonary meditation is often competitive. The sense of 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 working, of effort, of attaining a goal. And then looking at culture, memory, the context within which this is held, are um, supported by our collaborator, the dance teacher Shan Williams, um, people who suffer now from uh, the symptom of chronic breathlessness are often people who in their youth were the kind of cool people of the day. They spent their Friday, Saturday evenings in the pub or in dance halls, um, smoking, drinking. They didn't tend to engage with a gym context. That's not part of their lifestyle, part of their cultural context. Gym-like activities are not familiar to this demographic of older people. And the other problem is they don't like to get breathless, which is clearly what happens in the gym. And so this is what tends to happen. You feel breathless, you don't want to to do something that makes you breathless and you avoid those activities, do less activity, the muscles become weaker, weak muscles use more oxygen and are less efficient, and of course the the muscles of breathing are just the same. So we developed a hypothesis as a result of this and thought, well, okay, what have we thought about dance as an activity? The language of dance puts up fewer barriers than pulmonary rehabilitation. Previous life experience doesn't involve a gym culture, but may involve some kind of dance, and a lot of that was the case with a lot of our uh, um, participants. And dance involves an awareness of the whole body and might improve this interoceptive awareness that we talked about. I talked about at the beginning. So we. Um, recruited our participants from down and Breathe Easy and worked with them on this. We ran a programme over 10 weeks designed to increase exercise capacity, but also focus on whole body movement. And we gathered quantitative data and qualitative data. And we measured interoceptive awareness before and after the programme. And we published our account in BMJ Open Respiratory Research. And so the results. Well, um, this is a... A, a wordle that the participants put together, and you can see the kinds of things that came out of this: joy, movement, friendship, laugh, twirl, happiness, inspire, fun, and um, being active. All sorts of really fantastic words um, uh, that that our uh, participants were involved in, um, and uh, the results showed that. Um, uh, Providing exercise in this more familiar form, in a non-challenging space, and engaging the entire body might promote engagement and increase body awareness. And um, improvements in strength and mobility were observed. Um, Dance was fun and adopted by people with relevant past experiences. And it was possible to deliver this uh, dance in a community setting by an exercise uh, instructor. And here were some of the comments that people made. Uh, My legs are aching, I'm not sure if I'll get to bed, but I'm happy. Um, uh, The fun and the laughter are priceless. Um, She just, it was very much enjoyed by people and people forgot they were actually exercising. Um, So this was really critical for us. Having fun together um, deepened the bonds of this group and they've done more socializing together until COVID got in the way, but they're now beginning to get get going again. So breathlessness, I think, can be hidden in many different ways, to the experiencer, to society, to the socio-political sphere, and it leads to marginalisation. I'll just get this back for now. A medical humanities approach, I think, can help by uncovering these issues and by using alternative approaches to conventional public health we can raise awareness and bring the problem into public view. And even more than that, interdisciplinary approaches insisting on the importance of knowledge and methods from outside the biomedical sphere, but entangled with it, can I think lead to new modes of management being developed. Our dance group, I hope will continue now that COVID is is fading away. Um, and, uh, And they were really keen to do that. I think as doctors and as clinicians, we like to diagnose, treat and solve a problem, but conditions such as chronic chronic illness conditions, such as, as, as COPD or chronic symptoms like breathlessness, we don't have a solution to them. They're not going to be solved. There's no magic bullet or pill that will make them go away. Biomedicine likes to think of the body as a machine that can be fixed, but as... Um, Tim Ingold, the anthropologist says, to break out of the impasse we contend calls for nothing less than a dismantling of the machine. And the first step in doing so is to think of humans and indeed creatures of other kinds in terms not of what they are, but of what they can do. And I think what a medically emancipated approach brings is a wider perspective on what that can do might mean. Other directions and possibilities can open out. What is needed is a change of orientation from those of us who work with people with chronic breathlessness or other illnesses, from approach that focuses on outcomes to ones that's concerned with process, with engaging people in new ways of being in and enjoying their bodies, like dance or singing for breathing, another approach that we've looked at and supported. In this way, as Ingold goes on, we can think of ourselves not as being but as becomings that is not as discrete and preformed entities, but as trajectories of movement and growth. So as some doors close, we want to work with people to find other doors and helping them to open them. And I'd like just to thank uh, Welcome Trust and the team, and especially the people working on the dance project. Um, thank you very much for listening.
1: Well, <coughs> thank you, Ed. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jane. That's been absolutely fascinating and illuminating. Um, I'm always taken by the quote of René Le Riche, who talked about, le le santé et la silence des organes, health is the silence of your organs. And um, what you fabulously uh, outlined here is through a range of uh, medical and health humanities approaches, you know, anthropology, dance, uh, inquiry, you know, various forms of inquiry that, you you know, the gap that exists between what people genuinely are experiencing and I suppose our entrapment in in the healthcare gaze or uh, the the medical gaze. Um, One of the things that I suppose is also quite striking is uh, we can see in the cancer literature is that cancers that affect the higher socioeconomic groups, have a very strong focus in literature and cancers that affect lower socioeconomic groups, such as lung cancer, actually feature very poorly. So this class bias, I'm sure, reflects itself in in the relative absence in in, in the literature.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're right there, Des. I mean, I was astonished, actually, to find that so little had been written about breath because it strikes me. I mean, you know, obviously we did the project, but... Um, it strikes me as a sort of fascinating area for for study, this sort of dynamism of it, the the difficulty of grabbing hold of it. Um, But it it was distressing to see um, that report from the British Lung Foundation. I mean, it looked at the improvements in survival from heart disease, which over a decade had improved by, you know, something in the order of 15%, whereas lung disease, chronic lung disease, no improvement over the same decade at all. And I, I do seriously think that is reflected in the level of funding given to research in the area. And it's mm. a it's a major problem. Um, something that I would still, I mean, I'm now, I'm, the, that project is finished. I've now got this other larger job I'm now doing at the university. So I've got less time for research. But I am involved with a group in, um, in Sweden who are looking into long COVID now. They've yeah. got a major grant from the Swedish Research Council to, to actually to try to create a kind of medical humanities view on the emergence of this new condition and to try to establish at the outset of it, or you know, as near as the outset is, as we can, um, how our much broader interdisciplinary approach can help to under underline or, or or explain and um bring about a wider sense of how we start to understand this condition and how we start to address it
1: yeah, no, no, fantastically important, and uh, I'm involved with uh, various dance uh, projects with with dementia, and oh, I, I think yeah. you you had you had neatly pointed out the the alien nature of of the gym um, in, in in culture and. This, you know, as as I was listening to your talk, um, you know, I'm beginning to think more and more about, you know, um, I, I work mostly probably in the area of, co- of cognitive changes, of barriers of memory. But what does memory really mean to people mean to people? So you're you're certainly stimulating me. Um one of the novels that I found fascinating, um, and again, it's it's um it's interesting in its reviews, although its title was Breath. You know, a lot of its focus was on toxic masculinity. though, it was uh Tim Winton's Breath.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did it's that come, come up
1: in your in your inquiries, it, or
0: it, it did? I've actually to to t- t- it's not. I haven't actually read it. I have a copy of it. It's terrible. I've never got around to it, and I really have to. My son, my my stepson, gave it to me. because Tim Winton's an Australian writer, and Ben lives in an Australia, and I haven't to my shame read it. I, I, mm. I, um, but it, is it good? I mean, would you would you recommend it?
1: No, I I certainly would recommend it, and you know it starts out with a very strong focus on it, but uh, it, it's not the it's it, it, in a funny way it, it's a it's a kind of a a, a light running through. Yeah. Uh, but it's as it's just struck me the the other area that fascinates me. I mean, you've brought out the idea of shame here, and uh, as I, I, this is something we, we, we you know vanity. Is important to people. I think it's often construed in a very negative uh, sort of way, but you know, it's around self-esteem, and um, you know, I hadn't hadn't thought so much about this sense of, of shame in in breathlessness, but obviously this occurs in in a lot of illness. The other narrative that's quite interesting, I suppose, I have an interest in whether breathlessness in music. And both Rossini and uh, Marin Marais have uh, portrayed and again, it's music, but have portrayed asthma at a time. Now, again, asthma could be heart failure. It could be, you know, in those days. So um, this is it's such an illuminating and enriching way to get the public on board, to get politicians on board, Mm -hmm. but but to get the professionals on board to Mm -hmm. make us rethink um, You're reminding me there was a special edition of The Lancet, maybe must be 15 or 20 years ago, where on alternate pages, they had a leading figure in the professions talking about progress, say, in cystic fibrosis. But the facing page was the experience, the lived experience of a patient. And the gap was enormous.
0: Um, And
1: I think medical humanities is a very, very strong instrument for, for for Uh, teasing out i mean it's important in itself in terms of better knowledge but it's important vehicle for explaining to people
0: yes yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think i think the important thing that we need i think one of the important elements of what we do in medical humanities in this sort of field of critical medical medical humanities is we that we're not dishing medicine and that we're not we're not sort of sitting there and saying you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. I mean, if we look at the if we look at the COVID pandemic, you know, I mean, the amazing influence of the of the vaccination program and the extraordinary work that was done there. But had I think our field been more engaged, for example, in how that vaccine program was delivered at the outset, we perhaps would have would have not got into the sort of trouble of 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 the problems of. Of uptake amongst particular communities, because we, I mean, and I think anthropology has a big part to play here. We'd be able to say, well, hang, you know, hang on a minute. There's problems of trust. There's problems of of kind of religious um, uh, sensibility, um, you know, and um, and so we need to we need to maybe make a different kind of approach to some communities. So I think there's a kind of you know a sense that our field hasn't really quite got into some of those kind of key elements of how do we how do we help deliver um, management options, treatment options, how do we help create treatment options appropriately for particular communities with that kind of in-depth understanding of how these cultural elements, historical elements, elements of political trust and all the rest of it come into play.
1: So we've got one comment. And just to those who are listening in on the seminar, uh, please feel free to add a comment or a question into the Q&A. So Brendan Kelly says, uh, Brendan Kelly, Professor Brendan Kelly is a, a collaborator and colleague in the Medical Humanities yeah. here. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Yes, the religious significance of breath is considerable, especially in meditative traditions. Mm. Kabir says, student, tell me what is God? He is mm. the breath inside the breath. So I, I, again, I think you this this follows on. Um Mm, yeah, no. oh, you yeah, please.
0: Well, I was about to comment actually one of the despite the fact that our breath project was you know five years and, and we had we had a lot of resource, um, I was encouraged, I was sort of asked at the outset to really get involved in, in, in kind of the yoga kind of elements and the mindfulness pro- processes and all these the sort of um, these different sorts of practices. And I was worried about doing it because I felt it might just completely consume the project if we started mm. down that line. And my fo- I wanted my focus particularly to be on the kind of marginalised communities that I saw mm. around me in my early work in Glasgow and in the northeast of England and indeed the difficult areas around Bristol where Harvey works. Because I felt... Um, Yes, it's important to kind of understand all that stuff and how it works. And but I felt the project was very much focused on these on these communities who just well, I mean, and these communities, they don't do yoga either. They don't yeah. get into these kinds of practices. I mean, maybe that would be good if they did, but yeah. that's not part of their experience of life. And I wanted to understand what, what life was like for those individuals, primarily. If I had another five years in the project. I think it would be great to start to move on to some of these other traditions. Absolutely fascinating, um, and I mean it's a it's one of those those subjects that you could spend several lives exploring. I think.
1: Yeah, and I mean the the other aspect, and it strikes me, is is that of urban urban design. I yes. mean, one of your slides tellingly spoke about you know finding where there are benches. And what, what 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 has astonished me in many cities is the absence of regular regular pit yeah. stops for people.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it was very clear to me. I, I was, you know, to my shame when I first started sort of, when Javi and I started working together and Javi would come up to Durham and I would go down to Bristol and we would be getting the project sorted out. And if we'd go out together somewhere to a restaurant or something, I was so aware walking along with her and I was trying to engage conversation. It was impossible for her to speak. So the, just the just the business of walking along a street would consume her breath um, and she would have to keep stopping. And you're quite right. There was nowhere for her to sort of sit. And indeed, it was embarrassing to do that. Um, and I just I don't I mean, you know, we tend to the thing we focus on our communities is is about kind of. The sort of disability of not being able to walk using wheelchair, these kinds of things. But there are other problems, more invisible to the to the eye, um, that we maybe need to to look at. And of course, our streets being so kind of polluted, it's it's very problematic. So I think absolutely, it's it's a it's a major issue. And um, and I think actually, it leads to an awful lot of people with this condition just not going out. Actually, yeah, yeah. sadly. Mm-hmm.
1: A uh, vicious cycle, yeah. No, no, certainly uh, hugely interesting, and you're you're, you're prompting. Uh, first of all, uh, I hadn't been aware of the book, so I'm really looking forward to reading it, and uh, certainly looking forward to seeing. Um, you know, uh, if there's anywhere else that 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 we find uh, representations. One of the interesting pieces, and again, it 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 it's you 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 nicely. I think you pointed that you go to where the problem is, and you've got to be careful about bringing your own baggage. But there was a fascinating project by by um, some opera singers in English National Opera to see could some of these techniques be be used. And yes. having taken up choral singing fairly recently, yes. uh, I've been astonished at what I've learned. But again, no less than the gym, this may be you know. Yes. It, would there be some in through uh, you know the folk music that people use or popular yes. music? It's it's uh, tempting, but. Uh, Probably far-fetched.
0: Well, not at all far-fetched. There's a fantastic movement called Singing for Breathing, which um, has leapt upon the the kind of recent fad for for choral singing, as you suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Who's that guy in the telly who was doing all sorts of well, choral? Gareth. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so people got very involved in it, and we actually worked with a group in South Shields mm-hmm. uh, called themselves the Breathless Singers, and they made up the... We, they made it up a song, yeah. and we we did some we did some workshops with them. I remember one of my postdocs did some workshops workshops with them along with a with a singing for breathing teacher, and they made up their own song. And the song reflects the fact that they could only do short lines, you know. So they can't hold a note for too long. They need to take a breath and then do a line that's not too long. So it's got that they, you know it's designed around the needs of the breathless singers, and it's very very. Um, uh, very much oriented towards the traditions of South Townside, the fishing traditions, the industrial traditions. So we we published a short paper on that. Um, I can't remember where, but it'll be on our website. Um, and uh, but that was fun. And that's that's a that's a big deal because again, that's breathing together, singing in a group, trying to coordinate your breathing with other people. A bit like the dance, actually. It's very good.
1: Oh, That's fantastic. I've just uh, scoped that out, and um, we—I'll we, be talking to our arts and health program here anyway to Good see. Idea. You know, Good idea. Uh, we just
0: leap, leap on the um, social prescribing kind of uh, fad, yeah. and yeah. Uh, we can get those things done. Yeah. Really. So
1: listen, Jane, that has been an absolute blast. Um, I've learned a whole lot. Uh, you've given me a whole load of extra reading from my bedside locker. Um, <laughs> and you speak as well.
0: I'll get that book out. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, we're really, really grateful. Uh, and I think it's been, you know, just, just, and again, it's lovely uh, meeting and talking to you again. It would ever be better uh, if we were um, uh, together. I'll just say a brief word our, uh, for, uh, for our next uh session is uh, shelby who supports us so well here they attached no blame to the staff in charge, the role of Dublin workhouse officials in preventing and contributing to institutional mortality between 1872 and 1913. That's on Wednesday, April the 6th. So a big thank you uh, to Jane for, uh, as ever, providing a most um, uh, stimulating and energizing. I think uh, anybody attending will be going away with, with new ideas and we look forward to meeting up in the future again. And thanks to Shelby and Courtney.
0: Thanks everybody. The like Hub is a community.
1: community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance towards the history to of the Taimon Year Library. As well as being heard. Yes. The Hub it's is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Star, the, start. Start. Okay. Language Language C- Honestly, the Hub is about impact. 90% 90% of the, Quality. 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 the Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist okay. revolution
0: through peer to the next ten years.